This is Trepwire Week in Review for week ending May 12, 2023. I'm Martha Kocher with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS, commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Lonnie Henry, Head of Siri and Advisory Services. This week, a fresh round of economic data gave investors hope that the Fed will pause interest rate hikes. Consumer inflation was below 5% for the first time in two years, and wholesale inflation rose less than expected. And this week's initial jobless claims was the highest in 18 months. But concerns continue to linger with regional banks, and the debt ceiling battle has gained momentum. Manus, we've got some positive takeaways this week, but there's some storm clouds brewing. Certainly are. And I guess we begin with the banks. Another rough day for PacWest today, down 20%. They revealed earlier today that deposits fell almost 10% last week, which renewed the concerns that we saw early to mid last week when many of the regionals were down 10% or more. Uh, I was at an event this week and I asked some bankers at this event what their biggest concern is right now. I kind of knew what it would be, but I was wondering if it was consuming everybody. The people I was talking to, they are people that manage portfolios, look at risk, and keep tabs on real estate as, as their main focus day to day. And as I was meeting with this team, they were saying it's all about deposits. That's all we look at day after day after day. So this concern that we brought up in mid-March that should deposits become a big concern, it would likely lead to higher volatility, not just for banking stocks, but for the broader market. And it would threaten to slow down the economy as banks squirreled away their assets. And I think that that's what we're seeing right now. Banks are being very, very selective about where they're putting money out to work. I think holding on to deposits is very important and managing that risk is paramount to really everybody in the regional banking space and below. So we had a respite for about two weeks when I think everybody thought that we were the problems were behind us, that the deposit flows were starting to slow down, that this was not going to be something that extended beyond SVB and Signature Bank. And now it's front and center once again. So that is one of these parentheticals that are out there that have nothing to do with CPI or PPI or unemployment that the world is watching and there's really no way to look back at historical performance to know how this is going to play out. Uh, the debt ceiling is another one. We've had brinksmanship before. We've had standoffs before. We've had a, a clock that's been running out, but we've never had a default. Will we have a default June 1st? Who knows? But I, I think bank analysts, financial analysts, money managers, they live in this world where their routine every day is the same. Look at unemployment, look at GDP, look at CPI, look at interest rates. And now we're in a world where there's all this extra stimulus that we really don't have the tools to know how it's going to play out. And that's not good for anybody. It's not good for stocks. It's not good for bonds. And it's not good for commercial real estate. Yeah, we've talked a lot, man, it's on the CPI number, just that the metrics used are too dated. They're not real time enough. And to your point, now you add in the banking crisis or the risk of banking crisis um, and these other external factors. We live in an information age, but we're, we're using old reported data to now cast it to make sense of it. And I, I don't think that's the best policy. Like hopefully 
you know, after we get through this slowdown, we'll come to terms with maybe looking at some new metrics to try to get a real-time feel for where the markets are and the economy is so people can make more informed decisions. I wanted to add a little bit of context to your PacWest story on the deposit side. Uh, their securities filing said they lost about 9.5% of their total deposits last week, with majority of those deposit outflows occurring on May 4th and May 5th, which, you know, coincidentally followed right after the news that they were maybe exploring a potential sale. So we'll see if they can get that stabilized. I mean, the stock was halted several times due to volatile trading um, this last week. So hopefully for them, they can get that figured out. On the debt ceiling stuff, it's really interesting. If you listen to both sides, you know, both sides have basically said they've come to the table with what they think will get a, a resolution, yet no resolution has has taken place. And President Biden has held firm basically saying that debt limit talks must be separate from spending negotiation, which I think has been a real blocker from the, the right. And so we'll see if they can maybe finally get to a compromise and get that resolved. You know, there was a survey done by the Federal Reserve Senior Loan Officer Opinion Survey and Bank Lending Practices. This is a survey that was done on March 27th or put out there on March 27th with responses due by April 7th. It includes data from 65 domestic banks. And the takeaway here was that uh, in the first quarter, banks continue to tighten availability of credit uh, amid tumbling demand for loans, and particular commercial real estate loans. And some of the takeaways were, you know, that loan officers basically expect troubles to persist over the next year. Um, and this is due to a, a myriad of factors, but predominantly uh, lower expectations for economic growth. And then to your point earlier, man, is fears of just deposit outflows and reduced risk tolerance. And then the most frequently cited uh, commentary was just expected uh, deterioration in credit quality of their loan portfolio and in customers' collateral values. It's not just the folks trying to get financing or the lenders themselves. It's everyone connected to the transactions that are seeing this credit tightening in different um, in different forums. And then lastly, it's, it's interesting. I found this, this quote this week kind of funny. Uh, Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari, which we've quoted before on the pod, he said Thursday he's focused on the interplay between inflation, interest rate policy, and then what strains that mix will put on the banking system. Isn't that kind of their job? It kind of made me chuckle when, when he was stating the obvious there, but I'm glad that he put it out that that's what he's focused on. Yeah, I mean, we could be looking at a very perfectly bad storm for the banks. You look at three or four things happening all at once. Number one is you have the deposit outflow. No question about that, that that's front and center in their concerns. You have this issue that they have to pay more on their deposits. It's now that's front and center in the minds of depositors. Wait a second. I was only getting two basis points or five basis points or 10 basis points. I'm going to shop around. So you have upward funding costs and in an interesting graph that Matt Anderson shared with me this week, he showed the uptick in risk ratings for certain commercial real estate loans by banks. And we get very granular data on this from many, many banks. And I always think of the office problem as, at least for the time being, a conceptual problem. Leases haven't ended, maturity dates haven't been reached, it will become a huge problem, but it's not a huge problem yet, right? We've seen an uptick in delinquencies, but it's not above 3% yet. And yet when I look at Matt Anderson's numbers where they were really telling, the spike 
in risk ratings that have gone from of no concern to of concern has been really dramatic in the office space. So you are looking at a situation right now where banks could be faced with really flack coming from several different areas, and they're going to have to be very, very nimble uh, to get through what might be a very difficult time. Just to give some of our listeners context, Matt Anderson is our in-house bank expert. He uses a number of our different bank source data sets to basically look at what's happening in the banking system. So we have a combination of call report data, uh, bank consortia data, uh, and some of the things that you're talking about, Manis, I think are coming from our consortia data where banks are reporting to us their loan performance. Yes, we do have that. He's, he's just a wealth of data and models. Uh, Matt has also built for us, just to kind of complete the thought, this top-down model that stresses every bank's balance sheet and income statement for various conditions. If property values drop by 30%, if unemployment ticks up to 5%, if interest rates tick a certain way, if loan losses change in a certain direction, he can tell you and even allow you to move the dials yourself, what that will do to a bank's capital, what it will do to its NPLs and so forth. So for anybody out there that's listening that would like to uh, learn more about that, Matt's your guy. He's really been at this for a long time and he's he's excellent at what he does. We did have uh, a couple of earnings that were worthy of note before we move on to some of the property sector news. We saw Disney, Airbnb, and PayPal and uh, each of them had slightly interesting but different story to tell. Yeah, so if you look at Disney first, shares sunk more than 8% after reporting earnings that you know came in weaker than what analysts hoped for. You know, I think there was some optimism with their former CEO coming back. He came back, um, Bob Iger came back in November as the new CEO and truly tried to turn the company into a, a more profit-focused endeavor. Subscriber growth and margins have really been the push for them. And subscribers, I think they reported about 158 million. Target was 163 million. He spun it as, you know, they're still bullish on the combination of what they're offering, Disney Plus and Hulu. Uh, they just fell a little bit short this quarter. Airbnb, you know, fell after they released first quarter earnings. They beat estimates, but offered a cautious outlook to the current quarter. They actually rolled out some new stuff this last couple of weeks where you could actually just rent a room instead of actually taking down the Airbnb, the whole place. Total revenues were good. They were up 20% year over year. Uh, net profit was at 117 million, but their ADR average daily rates were you know, effectively the same as the previous year. They were uh, 168 a night, uh, which was flat. Um, but there were, you know, some promising signs, at least as they reported for urban centers. Uh, Airbnb is optimistic that travelers have started returning back to major cities. So, you know, if that happens, that could be good for Airbnb, but also could be good for some of these retailers and, you know, service providers that have really suffered from the lack of uh, business people in those urban centers. And then PayPal plunged on Tuesday, reported, you know, total revenue and payment volume that topped views. Um, but their stock was hurt uh, as Wall Street was unimpressed with the size of the company's 2023 outlook. So, you know, tough market in these conditions. You can still beat on earnings or revenue, but the market maybe is not uh, viewing your outlook as too optimistic. And so shares uh, take a dive. Well, I thought it was interesting for both Disney and PayPal, which had a big surge during the pandemic. 
obviously the tide has turned, right? Streaming is not as popular as it was when you were stuck at home and had not many entertainment options. And PayPal, which is a very e-commerce centric app, obviously uh, will have a challenge in continuing to grow at the rate it had, but the Disney parks are doing really well. Do you have a favorite Disney movie, Martha, that you would stream regularly as uh, as a mom? Don't a lot of the Disney movies have like somebody who dies? Think of some of the movies that begin with kind of some frightening beginnings. That's all I'm going to well, say. I'm guessing it's not Bambi. No, or even Dumbo, or even <laughs> Snow White. I mean... Mothers get a rough uh, go of it in a lot of yeah. the Disney movies now that you mentioned it. I hadn't thought of that before, but... Yeah, Dumbo in particular, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, don't pop that in this Mother's Day. How about you, Lonnie? Yeah, actually a funny story. Uh, like in the eighth grade, I went to a costume party and I went as Aladdin and I had the little, you know, what's the name of Boo or something on there? Me and Abu were, were living it up in the eighth grade as Aladdin. But, uh, <laughs> eighth grade? Yeah. <laughs> you were definitely not the cool kid. Oh, I was the cool kid, all right. Yeah, I was. You the go with cool the vest kid. and no shirt oh, yeah. underneath. Purple vest, no shirt, man. I was, oh, I was man. living it up. I was living my best Aladdin life. Oh, I love it. Much better than Lonnie on the shelf or Elf on the shelf, whatever it was. I was, I was definitely looking a little more svelte back in the eighth grade. Haley's <laughs> shaking her head. All right, let's get into some property sector news. We saw a, a Wall Street Journal article this week by Kate King talking about how the decline of the five-day commute could be some good news for suburban retail and boy, could they use some. And one that comes to mind is one in my neck of the woods, Bridgewater Commons. Yes, we had a real nice green shoot, or it seems that it'll be a green shoot when it comes to pass about the Bridgewater Commons. This is a big New Jersey mall, once worth almost 600 million. Starting about a year ago, we were reporting in Trep Wire that this particular mall by brokers who were out there putting out BOVs were calling the mall obsolete, value well below the $300 million loan balance. Last month, we got a new value of the mall, which was only $204 million, so about $100 million of negative equity in this particular asset. But we got news this week that it looks like the loan is going to be assumed. There will be a multi-year extension as part of this, and the extension was slated to close the first week of May. Now, we haven't gotten full details about what's involved here, if there's any kind of principal write-down, how long the extension is, if there are other accommodations. But if this mall muddles through and bondholders are made whole, this would just be an extraordinarily positive story for the CMBS market. This backs a single asset deal that's about 10 years old. And if this thing comes to pass that uh, a loan that had $100 million of negative equity uh, has a new owner, the owner leans in and ultimately pays this thing off in a couple of years, that's a terrific comeback. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that one. But while we're talking about the suburbs, that Wall Street Journal article brings up a, a good point, something that Martha and Lonnie and I have been talking about for a long time. The strength of the suburbs as it comes to shopping centers. We were at a conference recently where a lot of the topic was the retail apocalypse. And we talked about how when you talk about the, the four segments of retail, and maybe there's more than four, but if you break it down into malls, grocery anchored, shopping centers that are backed by 
Targets, Home Depots, Lowe's, and so forth. And then this vast other set of retail, which is backed by Kohl's and Marshall's and Burlington and so forth. Three of those four have done really, really well over the last three years. It's only the shopping malls that have have hit the rocks. And I think this article in the Wall Street Journal is kind of evidence of this. These outdoor shopping centers, they don't sell essentials, right? I don't know, Lon, do you go out and buy a button down every week? Right? <laughs> you know, you probably haven't bought a button down in two or three years, right? It's yet these things muddle on. You know, it, it's hard to explain, but they do. Yeah, I think in Texas, the requirement for uh, for these uh you know, shopping centers or strip malls is basically a donut shop, a dentist, a dry cleaner. Now there's like vape shops everywhere. So yeah, not really uh, buying any vapes. And, you know, man, it's you and I, we don't go shopping unless we get that uh, Kohl's cash in the mail or 30% off coupon. So I uh, still rocking some old button downs, but I would say, you know, I think what we've noticed is consumption hasn't really slowed. I mean, consumers are still spending money. It's just where are they spending that money? And if they're not commuting into the city, it makes sense that they're probably going to, you know, be buying goods at these suburban centers. And so other asset classes have fallen out of favor. If you just look at the transaction activity, a lot of the stories we've covered have been retail focused. And, you know, sure, the grocery anchored stuff has gotten most of the headlines, but I think people are pretty bullish on retail, especially in these kind of strong cities that have good suburban fundamentals, especially if they've persevered through COVID, they're looking at a pretty good risk-adjusted return on a lot of those centers. And so it's interesting to see. I don't know if employers start forcing people back to the city and to the office. Does that uh, change the dynamics of this market or if they have the, you know, the staying power, even if people start going back to the office, I guess we'll find out. So let's move to a couple of extensions that we've seen for retail. Yeah, there were more green shoots beyond just that Bridgewater story. The Avenues, which is a 600,000 square foot property in Jacksonville, Florida, it backs uh, a big 2013 loan, uh, $110 million in aggregate. Recent special servicer comments indicate that a three-year extension is being discussed and could close this quarter, which I guess would mean by the end of June, that would be a, another terrific green shoot for this particular asset. This loan lost Sears a couple of years ago, as did so many malls across the U.S. Occupancy fell to 63% uh, and then later to 58%. So a lot of headwinds for this particular property. So this would be a great outcome if this loan does, in fact, get extended. And then Martha, before we got on this call, pointed out that the Deptford Mall which backs another 2013 deal, looks like it will be extended as well. Mace Rich said in their most recent earnings that they had negotiated an extension for that particular CMBS loan as well. And Mace Rich, they've kind of threaded the needle here lately. They have another New Jersey loan, I think was theirs, the Bergen Town Center, which they were able to refinance. And then I think they got an extension on the Scottsdale Fashion Mall as well. It could be I could be reversing those two stories, but they've been able to uh, navigate these choppy waters very, very well. And if they get this extension on the Deptford, that would be more evidence of that. Do you think that this gives office owners hope, Manus, that maybe are facing the same fate? Because it seems like we've talked a little bit about toxic assets a few weeks ago, and malls clearly meet that criteria. But over the last couple of months, we've seen some extensions and some other things work out in favor of keeping those things going. You know, with all the office maturities upcoming, 
you know, do you think that there's going to be a similar fate for those where we see the extend and pretend or we see a small capital contribution and, you know, terms being extended out? It's a great question. It's very hard to say. And it's a question that everybody's asking right now. You can't go to a, a conference without people saying what's going to happen to office. I would say some of the early indications were a little bit concerning with Brookfield and PIMCO and Blackstone signaling they were giving back assets. Uh, wasn't a great early start to this process, but we have seen since then, and we'll get to one of those in a moment, some evidence of people negotiating extensions. So, you know, one of the things with malls is that mall owners tend to do nothing but malls. So if you're not fighting for your mall, what are you fighting for? So, you know, they have really dug in and, and tried to compete for these things. CBL uh, as well has has fought really hard for them. Mace Rich, as we said, has navigated this well. Will Brookfield and Blackstone and others in the office space have that same backbone for this? You know, the stomach to to keep these things? I, I think it remains to be seen. I think the go anywhere funds, I think are gonna be less likely to have the same tenacity as the mall owners have, but that's just my early read on this, you know, time will tell. And then we have a couple of trading alerts that bring us back to San Francisco, which we've talked about on several occasions, having challenges with its retail and office space. Yes, uh, San Francisco just continues to, you know, just light up the news ticker with negative stories. A couple this week, uh, Nordstrom announced that it was going to close two San Francisco locations, which are across the street from each other. The big one is in the Westfield San Francisco Center. This had already been on our radar. The property itself is split between retail and office. The two biggest office tenants, uh, Trust Arc, and I'll try to say this without laughing, Crunchyroll uh, vacated a couple of hundred thousand square feet leaving the office allocation with 40% occupancy uh, a year or two ago. And now we're seeing Nordstrom pull out. Last year, uh, Abercrombie and Fitch pulled out. This backs a really big CMBS loan. 300 million is the total debt package uh, behind a single asset deal. And I believe that there are other portions of the loans behind, uh, behind the loan in other conduit deals. This looks like a problem waiting to happen, and uh, the Nordstrom pulling out is, is more evidence of that. When you move over to Union Square, T-Mobile announced that it was closing its flagship store at 1 Stockton. This is an only 17,000 square foot street level store. It's two, uh, two levels split across 17,000 square feet, so it is tiny. It once uh, was the site of an Apple location. Apple left, T-Mobile jumped in there. Even though the space, uh, the total space of that particular parcel is tiny, it was still valued at 111 million in 2019 and was used to collateralize $66 million in CMBS debt. And now T-Mobile is pulling out, joining several other retailers and office tenants that are pulling out of that Union Square space. And this could be also a problem. This could be something where that $66 million debt could be in trouble. Uh, who are you going to find that's going to pay that that kind of rent going forward in a neighborhood that 
all you keep hearing about is safety concerns from uh, Walgreens to Whole Foods to office tenants and beyond. You know, it's 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 an ugly picture there. And hopefully the mayor there, the governor of California can can take some steps to right the ship because it's a beautiful city and one that deserves a better fate. That's interesting on that one, 17,000 square foot. If it was just that one store, it's maybe a, just a small blip on the radar. But with all those other retailers making announcements, I was doing some research this week, and I think there's been a total of 20 reasonably popular retailers that have announced store closures in San Francisco in the last 12 months. And you start adding up all that square footage, and it it, it really starts to make an impact. And so to your point, Manis, for the 17,000 square foot space, to backfill that, it's not really large enough to to maybe justify that type of valuation in today's rental rate market. And it's not really large enough to subdivide to get a bunch of smaller tenants in there. It's just kind of an awkward awkward retail space um, in a great what used to be a great location uh, that now is struggling. So it'll be interesting to see what they end up doing to try to backfill this if they have to. And lastly, on the retail, we shouldn't neglect to mention we saw another bankruptcy this week, Christmas tree shops. We put together a list of CMBS loans for which Christmas tree is a top five tenant. Um, they are a, a very tiny tenant behind several Northeastern and I think Florida in some cases shopping malls, but there are a couple of examples where they are the top tenant behind a medium-sized shopping center. So something to watch as they uh, have already started to announce store closings. 10 have been announced thus far and there may be more to come. So uh, we'll see. I've never been in a Christmas tree store. I like to shop and I like to browse and so forth, but I can't ever remember being in a Christmas tree store. All right, let's turn to the sector that everybody's talking about and watching, and that's office. I think I can't turn on any news program without hearing something about uh, commercial real estate, and it is inevitably about office. Yes, it's it's been uh, a remarkable run. To pick up on Lonnie's point before about borrowers leaning in and so forth, we did have a story that broke just a little while ago. Commercial Real Estate Direct has it. Uh, they cited the real deal, so you could look at either one of those sources to see the story. The subject property is 375 Park. It's also known as the Seagram Building, uh, a real trophy office in New York. About a year or two ago, they had lost Wells Fargo, maybe it's more like two or three years ago, lost Wells Fargo as a major tenant, worked really hard to rebuild the tenant base, got Blue Owl to take more than 100,000 square feet there. In total, RFR really, Realty, which is A.B. Rosen, added almost 400,000 square feet of new leases over the last couple of years. They had been in the market for a billion dollars in refinancing. The loan was slated to mature this month. The articles we referred to a moment ago indicate that RFR has managed to work out a multi-year uh, extension. The details have not come out. The articles just, quote unquote, use the term multi-year. So this is a case where, fortunately, they're not giving back the keys. They're going to fight for this, and rightly so. Occupancy is back over 90%. It is a trophy office. And I think that this will become a very common outcome for loans with maturities in 2023 and 24. The borrower going to the capital markets, looking for money, can't find it, and decide, let's negotiate an extension. In this case, why not? I think the coupon on the existing debt 
is under 4%. If you can get a couple more years on this thing and you've rebuilt your tenant base, you live to fight another day and for more favorable timing for refinancing or selling the property. I think everyone's saying survive till 25, right? Is that a bumper sticker? Lana, you should run for office, man. No, thank you. I like the Tripwire podcast. We can review a lot better. But let's cover a few more office stories. In the negative stories, you know, subleasing continues to be the name of the game. Uh, in Philly, this comes from the Philly Business Journal, um, pharmaceutical firm Janssen, which is a sub of J&J, &J, they will be vacating 130,000 square feet in Wayne, PA. Uh, this is on Chester Brook Boulevard. Uh, historically, that whole I-276 corridor has been very big for pharma and life science firms. But in this case, Janssen is consolidating into other nearby space. I don't know what you call this one. Maybe Toast Toast? The Boston Business Journal, Lucia Maffei and Greg Ryan reporting that Toast is planning to end its lease in the Fenway uh, market in Boston. Uh, another story here of a firm paying an awful lot of a lot, an awful lot of money to get out of a lease. In this case, Toast, which I'm not sure what they do, they will spend $16 million to vacate 111,000 square feet at 401 Park Drive. You know, when a company does this, when they pay that kind of money to terminate a lease. It just shows that there's not a lot of demand for them subleasing this space to somebody else to kind of defer this cost for them. Um, Boston has been one of the more resilient markets for us uh, in the U.S., buoyed by real strong health science demand. But this is the second big subleasing space we're seeing in Boston in the last two weeks. Uh, last week, I think it was... Visa, maybe putting it. Somebody else put a lot of space on the sublease market in Boston. And in Lonnie's neck of the woods, 3M has put over 200,000 square feet of space up to be subleased in North Austin. So this is at 13011 McAllen Pass in that market. So Toast, by the way, is a restaurant point of sales company. Toast, Toast? I don't know anything about Toast as an operating business. I'm sure they're fine financially. I was just making a a play on words there. So nobody should go out there and try to short Toast. I don't know anything about them other than the fact that they're looking to give up 111,000 square feet near Fenway Park. Yeah, they may be burnt Toast at this point. Um, no, it says their company's valued at $8 billion and they've got 2,000 employees. They're known as Toasters, by the way. Co-Toasters. Yeah, I think every week, Manus, we... We should have a dedicated, you know, section of the podcast that we just talk about subleases because that's definitely the narrative. And I think, you know, I was at a couple of events this week, and while everyone's acknowledging this increase in sublease space, we haven't actually seen the impact, the full impact of these sublease rents impacting overall contractor market rent. And so, I still think if you're taking a bearish look at the office market. You know, at some point, if you got in-place contract rents at 60 bucks a square foot, sublease rents are at $30 a square foot, you're maybe not renewing those tenants at 30, but you're definitely not going to be getting 60 either. And, you know, in addition to dropping occupancies, expanding cap rates, lack of interest from lenders, this realization of this new blended market level rent hasn't really been, uh, been impact or been felt in the market. The impact hasn't. And interestingly enough, we were, uh, I was on a panel this week and we, there's a tenant rep there 
that was talking about some new leases signed in New York. And, you know, in order to compete with a sublease availability, building owners were basically on a 10-year lease, giving away so many TIs and so many, you know, incentives, free rent for the tenant to move in. They weren't even going to break even until like year four and a half on a 10-year term. And so if you're looking at that, like, sure, you're signing a 10-year lease, maybe you have a good face rate, but your net effective rent is really being pummeled right now. And so it'll be interesting to see. I mean, those are things that we know are going to have to happen, but they haven't flown, you know, worked their way down through an operating statement at scale yet because of the staggered nature of these lease terms. So it'll be interesting to see when this starts to happen, you know, how hard of a reset is it going to be these subleases on the, the true market rent? So Lonnie, let me stay on that point for a minute because I want to ask you a question. We've talked about this in the multifamily space before, the difference between the quoted rent and the effective rent when people give away two free weeks or a month or something like that. And there's a difference between what the landlord makes and you know what they quote as what the ongoing rent is. In the office space, in times like this, where a TI might be instead of you know X, it's 2X or 3X or 4X, where the amount of free months is not six months, it's 18 months. How quickly do brokers get a sense of the difference between the quoted rate and the effective rate? And, you know, is it clear to you right now, is this just a bulging gap right now that these 60 asking rents are really reflective of something ridiculously low, like maybe a 42 or a 45 effective rent? Do you have any sense of where we are in this market right now? Yeah, so I think the the tenant reps that are in the space, they definitely get a sense for where the market is pretty quickly because the sublease rents should set the floor for what you know current market is in terms of, if I could go take somebody's built out space, usually with furniture and I can just move in and assume their lease at some you know ridiculously low sublease rental amount, if I'm the owner of the building, I'm competing with that directly if I'm trying to get a new tenant into a new space. And so I'm going to have to build it out their specification. You know, it's it's interesting. We've talked about this. There's two components to vacancy in real estate. You have the physical vacancy, which is just when someone's not there, but you also have economic vacancy. So shows up in multifamily is the easiest example. If it's a 12-month lease and you're only collecting 11 months because you gave one month free, you know, you're basically collecting 91 and change on the percentage of market rent. Like the best you can do is collect 11 of the 12 months because you gave one month free. On the office sector at this point, on a 10-year term, you're seeing really large, you know, rent abatement packages on the front end and then including significant tenant improvements because you want to get that long-term lease in place. I just, I guess the, the, the challenge is if you're underwriting, you know, are you underwriting that to go into the next two years. So for tenants that are going to sign in the next two years, you're going to have to offer that type of aggressive package and then things kind of revert back to the mean. Or are you underwriting that for the next 10 years, you're going to have to be offering those really large, you know, front end heavy leasing packages. And I think that's the part that's difficult. The tenant reps get to the number quickly because they're in the, the marketplace daily. They know what tenants are willing to pay and they know what levers they can pull to get landlords to work with them. I think the bigger question is just if you're on the acquisition side or the lender side, and you're trying to do due diligence or underwriting, you know, how do you actually underwrite an office building today? You certainly can't use the contract in place rent. You probably don't want to look at, you know, sublease rents and say, we're going to 
cap that into perpetuity, but you don't really have a feel for where that happy medium is. And I think that's the challenge for these from a valuation perspective. So in a functioning market, you know, let's take us back to 2019. What would you say historically has been the difference between, you know, quoted rents and effective rents for offices? Like what, you know, you as an appraiser, you as a valuation expert, historically, what has that been? You know, let's take us back to 2018. Let's use that as a benchmark. And where do you think we are now? I know you don't know precisely, but if you're if you were to like put your finger up in the air, where do you think we are as a function of comparison to that year? Yeah. So I think if you go back pre-pandemic, we would probably be at what I would call like just frictional vacancy or frictional loss between market rent and effective rent. I mean, you're talking about, you know, a couple of percentage points from what street rent is and what you're actually getting effective rent wise. Um, and so for the last 10 years up until COVID and then let's work from home, the landlord really has had the upper hand in those negotiations. So there hasn't been a huge economic most office operators when it comes to the leasing of their space. Now though, it's it's some multiple of that. I mean, I, I wouldn't be shocked if, if we're talking about a 10 year lease and break even isn't until year four. I mean, that's like historically high in terms of the economic loss that that landlords are willing to accept to get tenants in the space. And, you know, we actually published some research. We did a joint research piece with one of our partners a few months ago, and it was really interesting to look at if if tenants were already in a building and they were signing a renewal, they were shortening the length of their lease term by about 12%. And that's predominantly because they're not interested in the same way as a new tenant would be in terms of TI. Like they might want to have some of their stuff refreshed, but they're really not interested. They're not going to be wowed into a longer lease because of TIs. But on the front end of new leases, that lease term really hasn't changed that much. And it's because the landlords are really overpowering the new tenants with upfront TI, you know, to the to the benefit of the tenant. And so I would say we're in a very interesting market, much more tenant rep friendly. Um, so the tenant reps have the leverage. The challenge is just for them at this point, finding tenants that want office space. They can get really great terms, better than ever terms in some instances, but you just got to find people willing to sign on the dotted line for a 10-year lease when nobody's sure if that's what they're going to be doing in 10 years. So I've hijacked this entirely, making Lonnie go into an educational segment right on the spot without any preparation. Well done, Lonnie. That was a a, a nice piece that uh, that you gave us there. That was very informative for me as well. I hope it was for our listeners. When you're talking about signing on the dotted line, I will give you that one green shoot that uh, I promised. This is in the Bronx. Mercy College has renewed 125,000 square feet in a property that's right off the hutch. Uh, this is 1,200 Waters Place in the Bronx. Mercy College represents 30% of the space in that particular property. The lease was to end in 2024. Uh, the property itself is called the Hutchinson Metro Center. Uh, you could see it as you're driving to the Whitestone or to the Throgs Neck Bridge. And that we haven't talked about this at all, but colleges here and there, they've bailed out a couple of office owners here in New York uh, in Times Square with Toro, Toro Bulls that we talked about uh, a month ago or so. And uh, and now here we have Mercy College. So uh, good on them. Yeah, we had one more office story that we'll cover. And this is one that kind of falls under the headline of what we're seeing from a trend perspective. Uh, this comes from Anna Butler of the Dallas Business Journal. 
And thanks to Martha, she actually gave me a phonetic spelling and pronunciation of this uh, tenant because I didn't know how to say it, which is not anything new for our listeners here. But uh, Cacique Foods is moving their headquarters to the Dallas-Fort Worth market in Irving, Texas, uh, from California. So as we mentioned, this, this kind of follows a trend that we've seen of a lot of corporate relocations coming from California to Texas and to the Dallas-Fort Worth market in particular. So Cacique is going to uh, relocate, didn't say how many of their corporate employees, but they're going to relocate a large number of them. As we mentioned, it's going to be in a Class A office building in Irving, Texas. And they also have a new 200,000 square foot dairy processing facility in Amarillo, Texas. And that, that facility is going to support production capacity and continued growth um, for a company that's you know been in operation since 1973. Um, and so really great news for Texas, not so great news for California, but definitely follows some trends that we've seen in terms of other companies taking advantage of the business-friendly environment here in Texas. And a multifamily story that, Manus, this one's dedicated to you for what'll be obvious reasons in a minute. Yes, we do see um, former Met, former Red Sox, and I believe Seton Hall Pirate, if I'm not mistaken, Mo Vaughn uh, is selling a big portfolio to Nuveen. This is affordable housing. I think it was in Florida, Martha. Is that right? Is that where most of the locations are? I believe they have uh, rentals in Bronx, Brooklyn, and Queens, as well as Maryland, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, Texas, and some other states. So it sounds like a big one. Wow, I missed by that much. I said it was all in Florida, and none of it was in Florida. Well, well I think about, he's looking at investing in Florida, which is probably what you were thinking. Talking about a swing and a miss. Yeah, I was a big Mo Vaughn fan. He was terrific Red Sox, which was the team in the American League I root for, and uh, he was fun to watch for the Mets. We've actually reached out to Mo via LinkedIn periodically to see who come on the podcast. We'd love to have him on. This affordable, affordable housing uh, topic never goes away. We can never have enough affordable housing in the U.S. He's a guy that uh, has leaned in and has developed a lot of stuff. Uh, good for him, good for the places where he has built these properties. And if you ever saw Mo Vaughn play, when a guy like him leans in, there's a lot to lean in. He's a big man. And so good for him for uh, cutting this deal and, and for all the work he's done in the affordable housing. Mo, if you're listening, Think about coming on. We'd love to have you. Yeah. So when I was a kid, uh, back in like 95, uh, the Texas Rangers ballpark hosted the All-Star game. And uh, Mo Vaughn was an All-Star for the Red Sox then. And my dad got his tickets to uh, batting practice before the All-Star game. So you want to talk about someone that could just get up there and just light it up. He was ripping bombs out to the right field home run porch like nobody's business. It was uh, It was really impressive to see the power he had. You know, I went to a golf outing this week and they had the Pro-Am and, you know, they have all these guys come back and, and participate. It's to raise money for a hospital. It's a wonderful thing. Dale Murphy was there, former ball player, Trent Dilfer, Charles Barkley and so forth. And um, Bo Jackson was one of the big names there, one of the great athletes of all time. And he was there. And I read an article later in the day that he's been hiccuping since last summer. Yeah. Can you imagine? That must be the most annoying thing ever. Yeah, they see they was quoted as saying he wouldn't wish it on his worst enemy. And I would say Bo Jackson is the best athlete that I've ever seen in my lifetime. The 30 for 30 on ESPN that he did, 
incredible. The guy was just next level. Let's move on to shout outs from our own Kieran C. A shout out to Louise, Maggie, and Georgia, whose dad is making them listen to the Tripwire podcast in the car. So, wow, that's dedication. I'll tell you, be careful there. They're going to have social services on you in no time, making your kids listen to us <laughs> every week. And while we're on that theme, our own Julia S. listened in the car with her husband and loved the show and introduced her friends to the show and then heard from Jason W. who said, great podcast. So very cool. Brett H. on LinkedIn commented on our last episode, Dark Side CRE Twitter. Having Trep is like getting to read your siblings' most private diary pages. I don't know what I think about that. Lance A. looking for our bank report. Chris U. let us know he's a big fan. Zonga L. has been a frequent listener. Paul P. says he listens to the podcast every week. And Manus, I know sometimes you uh, procrastinate a little bit. So I'm just going to give you that friendly reminder to get the women in your life who are mothers a gift before they run out of cards at the Walgreens. My wife and I will do our best to avoid traffic this Sunday, stay home, have a nice barbecue and open up a nice bottle of wine and hopefully make it a very peaceful Mother's Day. And with that, we'll close. Thanks to our producer, Haley Keen. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or a comment, send your email to podcast at trep.com and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. And thank you all the mothers out there. All right. <laughs>